0: it's great to see everybody thanks for coming Um, so tonight we're just gonna have the talk and then after the talk um, we're gonna do adoration and it will be a little different in adoration so if you can stay I really encourage you to stay I'm gonna I'm gonna take you on what's kind of called a guided meditation Uh, it's called composition of place and so uh, we'll start with adoration. I'm going to kneel down. I'm going re- to read. I'm going to read scripture passage, and then I want you. If you want to kneel, you can. Sitting, I find is easier, but don't like like sit up straight. Um, and then I'm going to close your eyes, and I'm going to tell you to imagine things. And everything I tell you to imagine, you just listen to my voice, and you. And I'm going to guide you through the actual scripture passage. There's gonna be times where I'm gonna pause for what we call contemplative prayer. And it doesn't, maybe takes 15 minutes at the most. And that will be kind of our adoration time. But I really invite you to enter into it. Uh, The imagination is one of the things that is given to human beings. As far as we know, it really isn't given to any other creature. And we use our imaginations for all types of crazy things, stupid things most of the times. But they were meant to be used. In prayer as well. And it's a, it was a type of prayer that was kind of developed by St. Ignatius of Loyola and I've found extremely fruitful. So one of the things I said before when I got here is that I would teach you how to pray. Um, and so this is going to be one of those teaching moments, hopefully, where you can experience uh, what we call composition of place. The plague of human souls, I am convinced more and more, is mediocrity. It's just getting by, surviving. And we see this, we don't see it so much when we're young. We have these these great, huge desires, and then we kind of get into life and we kind of just level off. It's like we lose that fire, we lose that imagination, we lose the desires, and we just settle in. And we just got, you know, you just got to get used to it. And I'm, nothing, nothing will kill joy faster in your life, in your marriage, in your family, than just settling, than just saying, I guess this is the way things are going to be, and I have to accept it, it is the greatest danger to the human soul. And I'm here tonight, more than anything, to call you out of mediocrity and into joy. And for the record... And I hope you always experience this, those of you that are parishioners, even when I'm yelling and I yell a lot, that, that I'm not yelling at you. I'm, I'm, I'm excited and I want you to experience the th- same things that I experience. It's not that I don't think you don't pray. It's not that I don't think you don't do good works. The, the title of the series for this parish mission is Made for More. That's my job, is to call you to more. That's what Jesus does day in and day out. He just simply keeps calling us to more. You're never going to reach a place in your life where you've plateaued, right? I've said that before, and you just get to like, oh, I guess I've gotten as far as I can get, and that's as good as I can get. God is never going to be satisfied until you're with him forever. C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, God is easy to please but almost impossible to satisfy. He's pleased with any little thing you do, no matter how, giving up candy. Maybe that's huge for some of you. But giving up candy could be just a little thing, but he's pleased with every little thing you do. But he is never going to be satisfied. (laughs) Ever. God is an infinite God. You can't satisfy him. But you can move more and more and more towards him. And the closer you get to him, the more life begins to open up. I once read a book in the line and it is stuck with me. It's been, I don't know, 15 years now. The line was the battle in your life is against your joy. It is the thing that the devil's trying to take from you. It's what he doesn't want you to have. And joy is not, is what drove the first Christians to be Christians, even though it was a death sentence. They saw these people that had something that was different. Like, they, they saw it and they wanted it. Do people see us and want what we have? I remember when I was in, in, in high school and uh, Father Tom Richter and Father Austin Better came in and they were teaching us. And I didn't really even consider the priesthood Really, And I was looking at them and I'm like, whatever they got, I want. I don't know what it is. And for the longest time, I thought it was espresso. Because (laughs) they would drink espresso during their class. But I soon came to find out that it was their love for Jesus. That's what I wanted. Do people experience that in you? I was just talking to a a guy, uh, a, a past student of mine. And had a great conversation. And then I was talking to a mother of his mother. And she said that he's kind of gotten to the point where her son always says, whenever this guy says anything, trust him. Just trust him. If he tells you to do something, do it. Why? Because he's usually right. Why? Because he knows Jesus. That's what we want. We can can come up with a list of a thousand different things about what's wrong with the church. And trust me, I've heard most of them. About what's wrong with our country. And I've heard all of them. And we're so good at complaining. And we're so good at pointing out the problem. But how many of us are actually doing something to fix it? And you sit back and be like, oh, poor little me. What am I supposed to do? You're called to be a saint. There's a lot of saints, if they would have said, oh, poor little me, what am I supposed to do? The the world never would have changed. If St. Dominic would have just sat back and be like, what can I do? I'm just one human being. We wouldn't have had the Dominicans. If Mother Teresa would have said, oh, what, just help one poor person? Is that it? Is that God? Is that what you're calling to me? What difference could that possibly make? We wouldn't have had the missionaries of charity. There are thousands of examples of people that change the world. I hate to tell you this. This is really going to bother you. People change the world. You and I change the world. We're also what mess it up really, really bad. Raise your hand if you think you're a mess. Every, everybody's hands are really good. One hand, two hands up. The reason the world, everybody, would say, if I said, raise your hand, if you think the world's a mess, every hand would go up. And I'd say, raise your hand if you think you're a mess. Every hand should go up. We're killing ourselves. That's the problem. And I think I have a remedy for it. Because a joyful Christian is the only type of Christian. Now, joy doesn't mean you're always, right? That's impossible. But joy means that you are unshakable. No matter what happens, you're always focused on the good because you know the ultimate good, and you know that the ultimate good is going to have the final say. I remember watching this uh, audience with Pope Francis, and uh, he was sitting there and he was reading. You know, he had he had a sheet. He was reading, and you know, sometimes he goes off the cuff, which is. Not good for a pope, but sometimes they do that. And he was like, he was sitting there, and he was like, "There's no such thing as a gloomy Christian." And then he paused, and he's like, "That's right." (laughs) Like, like he read his own thing, and then had this moment of like, "Oh my gosh, that's true." There is no such thing as a gloomy, gloomy Christian. But again, the devil wants you to settle. He doesn't want you to consider joy. He wants you to think that relief is the height of this life. Just just relief, vacation. He doesn't want you day in and day out experiencing joy because joy is tangible. You can catch it. Who wants to be around an angry, old, crotchety person? Nobody. Nobody. In fact, you avoid them like the plague. But if you find somebody that's full of joy and always is positive and always... Everybody wants to be around them. You know who was like that was John Paul II. I remember when I met him. I met him five times. I was a glutton for meeting John Paul II. (laughs) But the first time I met him, I remember I was like, you know, I heard so much... I don't know if you guys know this, but my middle name is Carol. So I was named after him. His 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 actual name is Carol Waitia. And I was like, I'm meeting my namesake, you know, like this is great. And I went and I just, when I met him, there was just joy. Like everybody in the room was full of joy and he hadn't said a thing. And everybody was crying. It didn't matter. I don't care how tough you are. If you got around John Paul II, you just started weeping. Why? Because he was a conduit. When you met him, you met Jesus. I remember they they had a statement. They said when Pope John Paul got elected, uh, one of the, the journalists said, they have not elected a pope from Poland. They've elected a pope from Galilee. And what he meant by that is, they've elected a saint. And we sit back and we're like, well, that's John Paul II, man, he's Pope. So what? He wasn't always Pope. And in fact, if you follow his life, it was awful. It was awful. And somehow, under the regime of Nazism, losing his parents at a young age, he got run over by a truck. And you've been run over by a truck? And he's still at communism. He had everything against him except one thing, just one thing. Hope. Hope. I coined this. I don't think I was the only one that ever did this, but I've never read it anywhere, and I was pretty pumped when it happened. So I called him the Pope of Hope. (laughs) How about that? That's like my one claim to fame. It's the only original thing I've ever come up with. It's probably in some book somewhere. But anyway, I think I came up with it. Hope. If there is anything right now that is needed in this world, it's hope. Because without hope, you have nothing. But with hope, John Paul II looks at communism. And he says, this is a joke. (laughs) If people just believed, this would shatter. And so what did he do? He went... And they were going to give him three days. The communists were going to give him three days. But he wanted it over the feast of St. Wenceslaus. And they said, no way. The patron said of Poland, no way we're giving him that. We'll give him nine days at some other point. And that was their biggest mistake. Nine days he was in Poland. And all he did was travel around and tell them, you are God's children. And no matter what regime is in power, nothing can take that away from you. And if you believe that your leader is not in Russia, your leader is not in Germany, your leader is in eternity. And if you stand up for what he stood for, you will crush this regime. And you know what? They did. Did people die? Yeah, people died. I hate to tell you this, but for good things to happen, sometimes people have to die. And that's a terrible thing. And more than that, suffering has to occur. A lot of suffering. I've learned this more and more and more the longer I'm a priest. There is no, this is the beauty of Christianity. There is no resurrection without a crucifixion. There is, if you have something that's dead, you have to suffer and die to make it live again. Our country's dead. And literally, we have to suffer and die to raise it to life again. And you only, I hate, again, I hate to give this, you only have one life. That's it. There's this church in Rome, it's called the Bone Church. I don't know if you guys have been to Rome, if you get to see it, it's a really fascinating church. It's not really a church, it's like, it's underground, and it's like four different chapels. They found, when they were excavating underneath this church, they found the bones of 5,000 Capuchin monks. So it was a huge graveyard. And some weirdo got a great idea that he should take all of these bones and create four chapels. And when you walk through these chapels, the walls are bones, the chandeliers are rib cages. Vertebrae. The statues are the monks and they're sitting there and you can see their skeleton hands sticking out and their habits over their heads. And to tell you what, at first it's a little creepy. But then you get to the final chapel and there's four monks standing and they have their hands folded and they're staring at you. You can see their empty eye sockets underneath the hoods. And below, there's a plaque. And in Latin, it says, What we are, you soon will be. And what you are, we once were. And I have never had a more pure experience of my mortality than in that moment. And I realized my time is limited. And I better make the most of it. I don't want to come before Jesus and say that, you know, I had the number one position in the Pinochle app on the iPhone. I want to come before Jesus and say, I gave everything I had for you and you alone. I sacrificed my life for you because you sacrificed your life for me. You're probably not going to like this talk. You might even simply think I'm out of touch with reality or even a little crazy. But that's okay. Because to be a Christian is to be a little crazy. And I'm not sure, but most of you by now think I am a little crazy. So it doesn't matter anyway. I'm not here, again, to chastise. I am here to encourage. So let us start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father. When you sent your Son into this world, you said to us rather regretfully, I have come to set fire to the world, and how I wish it were already ablaze. In the face of this, we are but small candles, illumining ourselves, but most of the time not passing the light and the heat to others. Send forth your Spirit upon this group tonight, and take that small flame in our hearts and fan it into a great fire, a fire that has passion to live for you, to die for you, to live for others, but most importantly, to know you, which is the greatest good on this earth. We ask this through the intercession of Our Lady, who knew you more intimately than anyone has ever known you, as we pray together. Hail Mary. Oh, grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Joseph, patron saint of the Universal Church, pray for us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to start by asking you questions. Don't worry, you don't need to answer them. They're rhetorical, okay? But I just want to get you thinking. First question is this. How much time do you spend each day in prayer? I'm not talking on your way to work, you know, listening to Love. I'm not talking... You know, uh, walking around. and I'm talking where you really sit down, quiet your heart, and talk to Jesus. I'm not even talking devotionals. And this is all good stuff, don't get me wrong. I'm just asking you, how much time do you spend in quiet prayer every single day talking to Jesus? I heard a survey recently Uh, About this was Christians as a whole, and it was the average time was six and a half minutes a day. Six and a half minutes. Six and a half minutes. We can't be Christians and pray six and a half minutes a day. That's impossible, right? Imagine if you spent six and a half minutes with your spouse every day. Maybe some of you enjoy that. I don't know. (laughs) But imagine that. Imagine, like, if you said, this is my best friend, well, how much time do you spend together each day? Six and a half minutes. How would you even have a friendship? Relationships are all about time. And again, I know I've asked this in my homilies, but Jesus asked for one thing, and one thing only from his disciples. Just one thing for himself. Not for the world, not for the church, not for his mission. Just for him. And that one thing was the night before he died. He said, would you please stay with me for one hour and pray? Would you just do that? And they didn't. They couldn't do after all he had done for them. And, you know, we sit back, I think, and we see these early Christians, especially the disciples, and we're like, yeah, how could they do that? How could they run away? They spent three years with him. You know how many times I've heard people say, well, if I just saw Jesus, if I just, if I was like the apostles, in within, no, you would run away too. That's the point of the scriptures, is they're trying to show us to ourselves, and they're showing us deep spiritual truths about human nature. If we don't pray, we will leave him. And we might not leave him in the sense that we don't come to Sunday Mass, but we won't know him. We'll never have that deep, intimate relationship that he asks of us, that he wants with us. I mean, if I asked you right now how many people in this church, raise your hand if you don't have to, raise your hand if you know somebody that's left the Catholic faith. I bet every single hand would go up in this church. And then I would ask you this. Why did they leave? Was it because they reasoned and they studied the fathers of the church and they read the catechism and they read the entire Bible and then they said, you know what, this is garbage. That's not why they leave. They leave because little by little by little by little, they just walk away. They stop going to Sunday Mass. They stop their night prayers. They stop praying before dinner. They stop reading the Bible. And then all of a sudden, they're on the side of the world. Because Jesus knew that there's a principle inside of us. That if we, there is an evil principle inside of us, and if we don't keep it in check, it will destroy us. He knew that. That's why He came. I don't know about you, but I just find that there's so much apathy in the world right now. There's no, there's no great desires. I, I teach confirmation. Good kids. But there's no great desires. None. Except to be famous. That's probably their highest desire. Make a lot of money and be famous. Which never made any sense to me because those people are the most unhappy people you'll ever see. And yet somehow that has become the pinnacle of what we do, or or our greatest desire is work, or our greatest desire is hunting, or our greatest desire is fishing, or our greatest desire is shopping, or our greatest. Is, it's all these things of the world. If you read in John's gospel, he says, Father, I have called them out of the world. They are your gift to me. I want them to be with me as I'm with you. If there's anything I can hammer into your heart and head, It is that Jesus wants nothing more than you. He doesn't want your talents. He doesn't want your, he he just wants you. He doesn't want your volunteering. He doesn't want, he wants your heart. And all that other stuff, in the end, will become about you if he's not part of it. And it will overtake you. And half the stuff that, a lot of the times, what gets in our way is our sin, our weaknesses. That's what got in the way of Peter. Do you remember after the resurrection, Peter and they're up in Galilee, right? And and Peter still hasn't dealt with his sin, right? When he denied Jesus three times. And so he's sitting there with the other disciples and they're not doing anything. He's like, you know what? I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. What does a man do when he hasn't dealt with his sin? I'm going to work. I don't want to talk about it. I got to go work. So he goes and works. You know what happens that night? He catches nothing. The best fisherman in Galilee, some some historians argue. One of the biggest businesses, Peter and and James and John. He doesn't catch one fish. Why? Because his heart's not in the right place. It's all messed up. hasn't dealt with anything and so work harder throw him again until Jesus gets onto the shore and says to him throw your nets to the other side and as soon as he says that Peter there must have been a little light that went off in Peter's head because you remember how Jesus called Peter he got into his boat and he said put out into deep waters and throw your nets to the other side so something clicks and then he sees it as the Lord. He runs to him because he loves Jesus. And Jesus has this little charcoal fire sitting there, right? It's the weirdest, weirdest line in maybe all the scriptures. And so Peter said, There's a charcoal fire with some fish and bread on it. And Jesus said to the apostles, Let's have breakfast. <laughs> what a weird verse, right? And so apparently they have breakfast. And then they're sitting around that charcoal fire. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I need to talk to you. He says, What is it, Lord? He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, you you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. What does that mean? Do something, Peter. You can say you love me all you want. Does your life show it? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my flock. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And it says, Peter was distressed that he asked them a third time. And I don't know if you know this, but the words that they use. There's three words in, in four, actually, but three major words in Greek for love. And when Jesus asked Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me agape? Which means unconditionally. And Peter says, Yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Philios. As a brother. Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, do you love me agape, unconditionally? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Phileas, as a brother. And the third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me, Phileas? He goes down to Peter's level so that he can raise Peter up. And he will go down to any level that we are at so as to raise us up. The amount of stuff that people know about the world versus the knowledge they know about Jesus is really sad. I mean, I, I can ask some, most of the time, I mean, like a guy, I'm a guy, so I tend to ask guys. I could ask a guy, you know, who won the World Series in 1916? I don't even know if it was baseball in 1916, but let's just say that, that year. Not only could they tell me who won, they could tell me, you know, who sprained their ankle in the third inning on the second base as they slid in. And yet, if I say, what are the Ten Commandments? I what are the eight Beatitudes? I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm convinced that at the end of our lives, Jesus is going to give us what we desire most. And if it's not him, it's hell. He is going to be standing there. I don't know what your vision is of the judgment. My vision of the judgment is this come to me. Come. And if your whole life you've said, it's about me, 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 he's going to say, come. And you're going to say, it's about me. It's about hunting. It's about fishing. It's about shopping. It's about Amazon. It's about Twitter. It's about Facebook. Okay, you can have Facebook for the rest of your life, for eternity. I remember I was teaching the I was teaching the confirmation kids. And I said, what do you love more than anything in this world? And I was looking for Jesus. I didn't, I didn't get that. But I, would, I said, what do you love more than anything in this world? And this one kid's like, video games. And I'm like, okay, let's just play this out. Imagine if you had video games for the rest of eternity. He's like, yeah. That's what I've done. That's like heaven. And I'm like, is it really? Because all you would have is video games. Nobody to play with. Nobody to play against. Just you and your Xbox forever. And he's like, yeah, I don't want video games. We got to take this stuff to heart, whatever we love most. I always used to ask my students at the high school, I'd say, raise your hand if you go to Sunday Mass., Three-quarters of the hands would go up. I so said, keep your hands raised, all right? Now, keep your hands raised if you pray. You also go to a mess, but you also pray 10 minutes a day. Half the hands went down. I said, okay, keep your hands So I got, you know, maybe 10 hands up. And I'm like, keep your hands up if you pray a half hour each day. All the hands went down. And I'm like, let me understand this. You want to go to heaven, right? Uh huh. You, you know what heaven is? Heaven is eternity with Jesus. You get to spend the rest of eternity with Jesus. But you don't want to spend any time with him now? That makes no sense to me. If we want to spend eternity with him, we've got to spend time with him now. And if we don't, we're kidding ourselves. I think the lack of passion, the lack of fire comes from the fact that we have too much. I've harped on this for over a decade now. We just have too much. We're never driven to more. If we we want something to change, we don't change ourselves, we change our environment. My marriage is messed up. It couldn't be me. I'll just get a new wife, I'll get a new husband. My kids are messed up. That couldn't be my fault. I'll just take them to the psychologist. I remember my grandma, God rest her soul. She would save everything. Everything. I'm not, you guys don't look shocked enough. Like everything. She canned. She was canning. You know, I've kind of gotten into canning. Canning's fun. But anyway, she canned stuff that I didn't even know could be canned. You know, there'd be a leftover roast beef. And she's like, well, can the roast beef. And I'm like, I don't think you can can that, Grandma. And she's like, you can can anything. You know, I would, I would work up at, every summer I'd go up I was a slave <laughs> I would go up there and she'd work me like a dog for like an entire week and then pay me like 30 bucks at the end of the week but I would rip a hole in my jeans and she'd like I'd be like she's like oh we gotta sew it and I'm like it's cool I got another pair and she's like no 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 no, no. we gotta sew it we gotta sew it and so, you know I had my grandma jeans because I would just leave them up there they had patches everywhere they didn't fit anymore but she forced me to wear them It's interesting, you know, that generation, they they couldn't just change their environment. They couldn't afford it. They had to change. Isn't it it, it amazing that we call the the generation that sacrificed and suffered the most, we call them the great generation. What do we call the millennials? (laughs) Millennials? What do we call generation X? We haven't had any names for them yet hasn't even done anything. What did we do? What what, what did my generation do? Did we we take their example and live by it? Most of us just took their money and became lazy. The money that they couldn't spend a dime, they couldn't... it, It broke my grandma's heart to have to buy one more stamp to put on an envelope. I'm like, Grandma, it's a stamp. You don't know how hard your grandfather worked for this money. I don't. Lives lived with this mindset of just change your environment. You'll never experience joy. And you'll die, but you'll never truly live. I think some of you who are married can witness to this, right? You kind of level off. Or you're still deeply in love with each other. Is there a deep blazing love? Or is it just cooled down to coals? Do you still talk? I remember like when I would date girls. I know that's hard to believe. But when I would date girls. I mean I would just talk on the phone forever. About nothing. Until I'd hear my mom. You remember when you could could click and you could pick up the other phone? (laughs) What happened? I think we get so caught up in the anxieties of life that we just, we stop trying, we stop caring, and we just get by. But Jesus didn't come so that you and I could survive. He came to set us on fire. He said it. I once heard a talk, and I'll never forget this line. I know I've said it at this parish before, but it's, it's one of the most powerful lines. He said, the most important thing is to know the most important thing, and then make the most important thing the most important thing. The most important thing is to know the most important thing and then make the most important thing the most important thing and to do it for the rest of your life every single day. So what is the most important thing? Jesus tells us. He tells us he said he says this is eternal life. That you know God and Jesus whom he has sent. Knowledge is the most important thing in this world. Knowledge in relationship with God Almighty is the most important thing in this entire life. But how many of us really invest in a lived relationship with Almighty God? Daily. Daily. There was a a friend of mine maybe I've, you've heard this story from me, but there's a friend of mine, his name was Deacon James Keating. And he was, he was uh, young. They had just been married about five years. And uh, him and his wife, and he was working on his doctorate. And he would get up super early and he'd be gone all day and he'd get home super late, eat something real quick, go to bed. And he said, each time he did that, you know, he'd kiss his wife and he'd say, I love you, honey. And, you know, he'd go to bed and he'd wake up and kiss her goodbye. I love you, honey. And he'd leave and, and he said one day he was, he was walking out, tiptoeing out. It was early in the morning, and, and he heard his, his wife, Marianne. She said, Jim? And he, like, turned around, shocked, and he said, yeah. He said, I want you home today at 5 o'clock. And he's like, but my, my doctorate. And he's like, Jim, either you're here at 5 o'clock or I'm not. And he said... And I was a little afraid of my wife, so I decided to show up. So he showed up and he said, he sat at this table. And there was a seven and seven. That was his favorite cocktail and a bowl of pretzels. And they sat there and she said, we're going to talk for an hour. And he's like, an hour? And she's like, yeah, an hour. And he said, she just talked. Just blah, 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 He's like... He said, I, I, I don't even remember what she said because I didn't care. I didn't care. All I could think about is all the time I was wasting not being able to finish my doctorate, which she knew was important to me. And for 15 minutes, blah, 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 blah. And then she finally stopped and she said, well, Jim, Jim, how was your day today? And he said, I folded my arms and I looked at her and I said, Well, I didn't get to work on my doctorate as long as I would have liked. And she said, really, is that it? And he said, yeah, that's it. She said, well, I guess we're done then. And he said, I thought you were talking for an hour. She said, I'm not going to make you talk. he's like, whatever. And he gets up and slams the chair in and walks away. And as he's walking away, she said, Jim, tomorrow, five o'clock, either you're here or I'm not. And he said, this went on for weeks. And he said, I just sat there, so angry. And he said, in about week two, I ate a pretzel. (laughs) And he said, in about after one month, I took a sip of my drink. And he said, after 25 years, I'm more in love with that woman than I ever could have possibly imagined. And I traveled with him, and he would still, he would, he would leave. If we're like, hey, we're going to go get supper and a few drinks and hang out, and he's like, I'll catch up with you guys. He's like, five o'clock. And we're like, okay, Jim. <laughs> and he would go and call. And he would talk. See, the beauty of Marianne, what she understood was, is that the marriage was failing because the relationship was failing. The communication was failing. And as soon as she sensed that crack, she did something about it. They have one of the most beautiful marriages I've ever seen. She's just a spitfire, firecracker. And he's just dorky theologian who is hilarious because he has such a dry sense of humor. One night we were sitting eating dinner and I was like I was like I was like, Deacon what do you do for hobbies? I was like you gotta have some hobbies I've never seen you and, he's, and she's like yeah Jim tell him what your hobbies are and I'm like oh boy and he's like I uh, I, sh- I show dogs I'm like what? <laughs> yeah I, sh- I show dogs I'm like you show dogs? I was like you don't even own a dog But just, you know, the two wacky, wackiest people that never should have got together, got together. But they learned. They learned that communication is the central thing. They didn't let the anxieties, the distractions to allow them just to get by, to barely live, to barely survive. And even us priests, we get into this too. We suffer from this. You know, I mean... You set out, you get ordained, you get ordained. I'm like, I'm going to conquer the world, man. And then you give a bad homily, and you're like, I'm a terrible priest. Or you try to do something different, and people just berate you for doing it, and you're just like, why even try? I'm just going to settle. I'll just, I'll just do the sacraments. I'll just be here, but the people need me they'll call me. That's a dead priest. Just like there's dead marriages, there's dead clergy. And what happened is, is somewhere they stopped praying. I am convinced of it. And so we have this principle inside of us, right? This evil principle. If we don't keep it in check, it will destroy us. But there is something else. And the other thing is this. Love quickly declines. Love quickly declines. Any one of us can see this in our lives. The things that enraptured us, that we were madly in love with, they kind of just fade away. And the world, the world capitalizes on this. This is why we have unbridled capitalism. Because they know love quickly declines. And so they know that you're going to get bored and they're going to give you something else. And then you're like, I'm just going to get that, I get that, I get that, I get that, that I'm going to be happy. And you're not. And then they say, yeah, but you know why you're happy? It's because you don't have this. Well, if I just get that, 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 would be happy? No, you're not. Love quickly declines. I'll give you an example from the scriptures. Do you, you know, the ancient Israelites, I don't know if you know this, but the ancient Israelites are like, a, they're a symbol of us, right? And it always struck me, these people, they saw the 10 plagues of Egypt, okay? You know, all, even the weird ones, you know. The darkness that covered the land, the, the frogs. That one's always kind of a funny one. You know, frogs. You ever wonder why it's frogs? You know why there's frogs all over the, the, the land of Egypt? Because one of the Egyptian gods was a frog. It had a frog face. And so God is showing his dominion over that, that he is the one true God. But they see it all. They see, they, they, they see the hail. They see. The river turned to blood. They see, ultimately, they see the Red Sea split in two. I would be happy with seeing the Missouri split in two. They saw a whole sea split, water to their left, water to their right, walking on dry ground, getting to the other side, seeing the sea collapse upon the Egyptian chariots and charioteers, and then they traveled to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai, and Moses is like, here's God's deal. He wants to be your God, and he wants you to be his people. And here's his law, and they're like, yes, we are God's people. We love God. In six weeks, in six weeks, they're drunk, having sex with each other, worshiping a golden calf. Six weeks. Love quickly declines. If you don't do anything about it, you will lose it. And if that happens in in our worldly relationships, it surely is going to happen in our spiritual relationships. There is no doubt in my mind. Why would the soul be any different? If you think there's some easy way to get holy, to get to heaven, like some magic pill that you take, you're crazy. Pope Francis said, I love this sight He said, Never trust a love that sacrifices nothing and, and never suffers. Don't trust somebody who never sacrifices and never suffers. We have to sacrifice. So, where did we go wrong? Where did we become part of the world? Jesus calls us out of the world. Why do we so desperately want to be in it? I think it's because we're afraid. And we're not afraid of our weakness. We're afraid of our greatness. I have a past student of mine who got into some pretty bad trouble and and has been suffering a lot. And he recently went to rehab. And I've been visiting him. And in there, in this little place, when you walk in, there's a sign. And on that sign is a quote. And the quote is this. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. Your playing small doesn't serve anyone. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give, our, we give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. It's not just about avoiding evil, it's about doing good. How many times in the gospel does it say, you didn't do this, you didn't do that? Remember the story of the talents? One's given ten, one's given five, one's given one. The one that's given one didn't go buy maths with it. He just didn't do anything with it. And in the parable, Jesus says, take it from him, give it to the one with ten, and get him out of my sight. Now remember, this is the second person of the divine trinity. This is happy, fluffy, lovey Jesus. Get him out of my sight. This worthless servant. In the book of Revelation it says, How I wish you were either hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. If there is anything that the Lord hates, it's mediocrity. It's mediocrity. He hates it. Because the mediocre person won't change The one that's hot Doing crazy good things He's going to keep doing good things She's going to keep doing good things The one that's cold They're eventually going to hit a brick wall What we call rock bottom And there's a chance that they're going to turn back But the lukewarm mediocre person Never changes And then they blame everybody, everybody else for everything Instead of doing anything Avoiding evil is not enough. We've got to do good. And we've got to model it for our children daily. We can't just tell them the tank, stay away, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And they're like, why? Why? I, I remember teaching in high school and kids would always ask me, Father, is this a sin? Hey, Father, is this a sin? What are they doing? They're seeing how far they can be bad before they go to hell. I'm like, you guys, I'm dying. I'm just dying for you to say, hey, Father, is this a virtue? Hey, is is this a virtue? Or could I do even better? When I talk with the confirmation kids, students, one of their favorite classes is when I talk about the devil. I can't figure that out. As if the devil is like this new thing. He's as old as Adam and Eve. The new thing is Jesus. I tell him, I say, you want to be really rebellious? You want to be countercultural? You want to push back and be kind of the the badass, excuse me. <clears throat> then live your faith. Because nobody's doing that. That's countercultural. We as a society, as a church, need to be picking up our swords picking up our guns, these are metaphors, of course, <laughs> and fighting back. People need to know that we're Catholic. Do people know you're Catholic? Do people you work with? I mean, there's, there's one thing that drives me, I mean, there's a lot of things that drive me nuts, but when I'm around people and they're like, if the, you use God's name in vain, I will kill you. Right? One time I had this guy just GD this, GD that, GD this, GD that. And finally I went up to him. I said, you know what? Your wife is fat and ugly. (laughs) Yeah, I almost got in a fight. If I wouldn't have my blacks on, I might have gotten in a fight. And he said, how dare you say that? And I said, every time you say God's name in vain, that's what it's like for me. So you stop saying that. And I'll never say that about your wife again, who I'm sure is very beautiful and charming. Do people know? Do do, do you stand up? And yes, I'm not saying you got to be in people's faces, but we have a right to be heard. We have a right to speak. Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against us. Last time I checked, gates don't defend. You attack gates. But we're afraid and we lack fire because we don't know him. I remember Jesus told me on a retreat one time. I was sitting, I was reading St. Paul's, uh, you know, his litany of when he's talking about everything that he's been through. You know, I've been stoned, I've been beaten, I've been scourged, I've been shipwrecked, I've been starving. I've been, and then my favorite line is at the end. And he lit this whole thing and then he says, and on top of that, I have to deal with all of you. <laughs> you know? But he's, he's going through that, and I remember sitting in the chapel, and I was like, man, what if I did that? Like, what if, what if I did the stuff like St. Paul? What, what if I lived a life like St. Paul? And I'm not kidding you, not audibly, but I heard so clearly God say to me, you can. You can. And you know what I did? I got up, I genuflected, and I left the chapel. I was so freaked out because of what it was going to cost me. I wasn't even thinking about what, I mean, St. Paul is one of the most famous people in the entire world. Because of what he underwent. And then I was outside walking and I was like, you know, okay Lord, but maybe I'm supposed to be like the scotch drinking St. Paul. <laughs> you know, that's new, we don't have that yet. Or maybe like the cigar smoking St. Paul, that would, that would fit me. But he knew, and he knows with all of us. We're called to sanctity. We are called to sanctity. But will we pay the price? You know, there's a saying that guys always say, and it's almost always guys, they always say to me, and it drives me nuts. And it's usually because they're failing as the spiritual leader of their their family. But they'll say this, Father, I don't know about everybody else, but I'm shooting to get into purgatory. And every time a guy says that, I say to him, I said, Sir, with that mindset, you are most certainly going to hell. Why would we shoot for purgatory? Why wouldn't we shoot for the the crown? Because we're afraid. We're afraid we're going to fail. Fail is a word that God doesn't understand. Fail is a word that is not in God's vocabulary. And the more you get to know Him, the more you will understand that. And the more brave you'll become, and the more free you'll become. But you gotta put out into the deep. And putting out into the deep is scary. I remember one time I was on retreat and I was snorkeling? <laughs> That's my retreat. <laughs> But we were on this little retreat center by an ocean and they had free snorkeling gear. So I went snorkeling and it was a very, very beautiful, enlightening moment for me. There was this little wave break, right? And you could swim in this little area is only about four feet deep. And I was snorkeling all over the place and there were little fish and it was fun, you know. And then I stood up and I looked at the rocks. And Jesus said, put out into the deep. And I'm like, I don't want to go out there. he's like, but that's where the excitement is. See, you're stuck in your little area right here. You want to get real fun, go out there. And I did. I almost died. (laughs) But I saw fish that scared the hell out of me. I saw things beyond that rock break. I was only out there for five minutes, but I did put out into the deep. And he was right. That's what the exciting part is, but that's what the dangerous part is too. So we can either just hunker down and live our own lives and watch the world go to hell, or we can literally get out into the deep where it's dangerous, where we don't know what's going to happen. But that's where faith comes. And the more you encounter Jesus, the more he implants in your heart, as he says in Luke's gospel, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. And if our church really believed that, we would be unstoppable. Tonight, as we enter into this holy hour, I just invite you... To quiet your heart, right? I want to give you one, just one piece of advice. If there's anything I could tell you that, because we come to these talks a lot, and we might leave and feel energized and excited, and then love quickly declines, and we go back to our own life. If there's one concrete thing I could give to you, it's this one half hour of prayer every day. Every day. With the amount of people that are in this church right now, there is no reason that St. Joseph's Church cannot have Eucharistic adoration every single day of the week. And I long for that. Because the closer people get to this, the more things start to happen. One half hour. And in that half hour, half of it with the scriptures, half of it in silence. It's going to be hard at first, but it'll be worth it. And eventually you'll realize that you're not as alone as you thought you were.